Welcome back to the podcast. I uh, appreciate your joining us again. We are here with uh, Will Morris, DPT. Will is a physical therapist with the United States Army, and he is currently stationed in California. He, uh, he escaped the Hawaiian Islands recently and was returned to the mainland and uh, now is in a position where he can get in his car and drive 200 miles in any direction that he wants to. And uh, I know that uh, uh, Will is from the lower 48. He appreciates that opportunity more than those of you Islanders will ever understand. So Will, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about pain. Uh, you know, I know subject. it is, and it certainly as hell is my favorite subject. My back has been hurting for about three weeks now, and I'm getting real tired of it. Uh, but I have a history of back pain. I've, my back has hurt off and on for, you know, 40 years. And I think probably that, uh, you know, most people have had a similar back pain history, us being upright bipedal humans. I just wrote an article about mm. that. It appeared in PJ Media. Back pain is an, is an interesting topic. I think it probably is the uh, most common human pain complaint. Uh, people all over the world have back pain. Humans have back pain. Everybody that's over the age of 30 has some type of degenerative uh, vertebral process going on that's probably identifiable on, uh, on an MRI study. And uh, back pain as a result is, uh, is kind of an interesting thing because uh, back pain and, uh, and pain in general, but especially back pain, may or may not be the result of what you see on the MRI study. Uh, this presents an interesting uh, situation within the doctor's office. You go to the doctor's office with back pain. He orders an MRI study. If you're older than 30, something's going to be wrong with your back. But the thing that is wrong with your back may or may not be the thing that's causing the pain. So we have to approach the, the resolution of back pain very carefully. As I said, my back's been hurting for about three weeks. And uh, hell, I don't know. I don't know. I've been, I've just trained through it. It's been bothering me a little bit, more than it normally does. I'm training through it. I'm handling the same numbers uh, that I would have handled had I not been having the back pain tonight. I'm on a deadlift heavy. so. It's not going to be any fun, but I'm not crippled. I don't have any numbness, tingling, any neurological symptoms. I just have back pain. Uh, mm. I know, Will, you see a lot of this in your, in your practice because dealing with people in the Army, you're dealing with people that are over 30. You're dealing with people with back pain. What do you do? Well, I think um, probably the most important thing to, to bring out with this is uh, probably 10% of the, the people that I have come into my office have an acute injury, that they have an ankle sprain, they have a torn ACL, they have something that there was some kind of catastrophic failure of tissue, and that's why they're in my office. Probably 80 to 90% of those that I see are 
people that have some type of chronic pain or some type of undiagnosable joint pain. And then a large portion of those are people that come in with back pain. And so most of the patients that I see, whether they be um, military members or dependents, are people that come in with just pain. And that's, that's their primary diagnosis. They come in, they have pain, and really whenever you look at their physical exam and stuff like that, like that's really what you come out with, that they don't have any catastrophic disruption of tissue. They don't have any diagnosable injury. They just have mechanical pain. And so um, the thing that you have to understand about pain is that pain is is completely derived from the central nervous system. It, it has no, no bearing on what's actually going on. Like people can have horrific wounds and feel no pain. Some people can have very minor injuries and have crippling pain. You know, you see this all the time. People have a hangnail and not want to do anything with their hand, but yet we have people in combat that get shot three or four times and continue on, don't even know that they've been shot. Um, we know that the central nervous system is very important for the perception of pain because surgery depends on kind of knocking out the central nervous system and, and surgery people feel no pain, even though there are barbaric things being done to the to the human body while they're under anesthesia for surgery. And so whenever you start to look at pain as not just necessarily that pathoanatomical approach that I have rotator cuff tendonitis or I have a herniated disc or I have degenerative disc disease, if you just look at it from the perspective that pain is the primary impairment and then you address it with some type of biomechanical training, which in large part for me, that's teaching people how to squat and deadlift. And then you let people know that whenever you have mechanical pain, that for the most part, it's generally safe to continue to train through it. And most people will find that, especially with back pain, the back pain usually hangs around for three to six weeks and then it then it goes away. And that's what we that's what we know of. That's what we generally call non-specific mechanical low back pain is that we know it comes in episodes and that what happens and what tends to make the episodes more more frequent or make them kind of longer in duration is that whenever people have back pain, they get scared to do anything. So they take three to six weeks off. And then whenever you do nothing with your back, then you tend to become overly sensitive to continued pain. And so that's when you see people that have nothing diagnosably wrong with their back outside of the norm. And you see these people that will be in kind of disabling level pain for 16, 20, 24 weeks at a time, because it's very hard to force these people to do anything. Well, and that's kind of a, you know, pain is after all a, a, a mechanism that has evolved over hundreds of millions of years and all animals at some level feel some kind of <clears throat> uh, sensory input uh, that we would interpret as pain. I mean, uh, pain is how sub-rational beings learn things. It's how dogs and cats learn not to get slammed in the door. And, you know, it's, it's a finely developed mechanism. It is, uh, it's stood us in good stead for hundreds of millions of years. And, uh, you know, if you burn your hand, it hurts. You associate the burn on your hand with the thing that, that causes pain. So. It's not entirely irrational to uh, associate back pain with a, uh, a use of the back uh, 
and to associate the pain with the idea that maybe we're not supposed to use our backs until the pain resolves. And it's, it's difficult to communicate the idea to people that, we, yeah, we know your back hurts, but you can deadlift. Not only will it be better if you deadlift, it won't hurt anymore if you deadlift. Mm -hmm. And it'll make the pain eventually go away and eventually, over the long time, make the pain better. But that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It is. And just like you said, I mean, pain by its pain in and of itself is an emotion. It has a very strong emotional component. Well, there are there are emotional reactions associated with it because of the animal's history with pain. Uh, Let's say, for instance, a, a person who's who's been beaten every day for most of their lives is going to have a different reaction to, to, to the pain on the skin than someone who uh, uh, may associate occasional bouts of pain with extreme pleasure. <laughs> this, this happens, boys and girls. Uh, so uh, different levels of psychological association with pain produce different reactions to the pain. but. Uh, if you burn your hand, your hand hurts. It hurts because of the burn. If you touch something with the burn part of your hand, you learn very quickly not to do that because it makes the pain worse. Um, that's not the way the back works. But you, you no, can I, see why it would be, it would be uh, 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 why a person would be reluctant to go ahead and push through the pain. Uh, it's something that you have to learn how to do. It's something that you have to, to if like somebody comes in here with you know three years worth of chronic back pain, they can't deadlift an empty bar. They never have deadlift an empty bar. They're going to have to trust me when I tell them that uh, they'll be able to do 95 pounds a day. It won't hurt, and it'll feel better tomorrow. It will be counterintuitive to them. They're going to have to trust me. And you run into this all the time, too. Yeah, I do. And um, the probably the most important thing that I do with patients that come in here that, that present with some type of fear with doing some type of movement that I'm asking them to do is demonstrate to them why the way that I'm teaching them how to do it is safe. Because like I said, I mean, pain has a very strong emotional component. It's tied directly into our limbic system. So there's a there's a lot of instinct that goes into pain. And so people are naturally kind of hardwired to be, to want to stay away from pain, but you can override that by instructing people, Hey, I'm going to have you deadlift. This is what I'm going to have you do with your back. And this is why it's going to be safe. And I've been very fortunate to be able to have people come in and have the opportunity to show them, Hey, I'm going to have you lift something, but I'm going to, one, show you why what you're doing now is wrong. And then I'm going to show you a better way. And I'm going to explain to you during that process why it's okay for you to do this. Um, and generally, I mean, kind of my standard prescription for somebody with back pain is have them demonstrate to me how they've always been taught to lift something off the ground. And I'm very careful not to use the word deadlift because if I use the word deadlift, that ties into people's fears that they, they have been told repeatedly or they've heard that deadlifting is bad for your back. But if I put it, if I pose it to the, the patient, like, hey, if you have to lift something off the ground, how, how would you do it? Like, how, what have you always been told? And virtually everybody will say, well, I'm going to lift it with my legs. And so then 
pin, I say, okay, that sounds good. Let's go out to the gym floor and I'm going to have you demonstrate to me. I pull a mirror up beside them, have them lift something off the floor. And then I start showing them why their back hurts whenever they do that. And then I show them a better way. And I, whether they know it or not, I'm teaching them how to deadlift. And I teach them how to deadlift, how to get in the proper position, and then show them how to lift something off the floor in the model that we use as the deadlift. And they do that and they say, yeah, that doesn't hurt whenever I do that. And I'm saying, exactly, that's exactly how you're supposed to lift something. This is the safe way to do it. And then I start progressively loading them. And whenever patients will let me do that with them, um, I probably have just as much success, if not more success than any of the other therapists that I've worked with because that's the model. I get them squatting and deadlifting and I explain to them a rational explanation why this is actually safe for you. And if they'll, if their frontal lobe will kind of override their limbic system and they will use cognitive reasoning to override fear and instinct, then they do just fine. But I mean, I would be lying to you if I told you that everybody could do that because I have a lot of people that come in that there's nothing on God's green earth that will get them to ever lift weights again because it's so deeply ingrained in their in their brain that they will never be able to do that again, that there's just nothing that I'm going to be able to do to do that. But for everybody that's willing and everybody that's able Squatting and deadlifting is the best thing that I can do for somebody's back. Well, and why have they carried this baggage into your office? Who's told them this? Well, Just out um, of curiosity. You know, for the most part, I mean, it's, I don't want to like bash on other healthcare professions, but it tends to be that, you know, especially your um, like primary care based um, physicians tend to be very risk adverse. And it's, it's from a litigation standpoint, it makes more sense to tell somebody if something hurts, don't do it. Because if I tell you to deadlift and you come back and your back hurts more, you're going to blame the deadlifting for it. You're not going to blame the fact that it's a natural progression of back pain that usually escalates a little bit and then it starts to go away. Whenever you've had any increase in symptoms, you're going to say, well, it's because that guy told me that I needed a deadlift and I hurt my back doing it. Um, and so you probably see more and more that well-meaning doctors and other healthcare providers are telling patients, well, you shouldn't do that because it hurts. When in reality, you show somebody the right way to do it and you can, and no different than what you do or any starting strength coach does. Um, whenever they have a new trainee come in, you have them, you teach them how to do the lift, right? And you identify faults that they have, do the same thing in my office. And, you know, I have a decent amount of success being able to do that, but there's just some people that come in. And if that, if somebody with the initials MD or DO after their name has ever told them that you can't do that again, there's really nothing that I'm going to be able to do save working with them for a long period of time and being able to demonstrate to them that not only can they do it, that they should do it. And, and I, I have some success with that, but by and large, if, if a doctor's ever told somebody you can't do it or you shouldn't do it, they're probably not going to. And that's for the general population. That's totally different from people that I have come in that were amputees or um, polytraumas or something like that. They tend to have a totally different mindset. They've been told for the most part that they can't do anything. And their biggest goal in life is to get back to doing something. And so they'll do whatever whatever you want them to. But the general population tends to 
shy away from that, especially if a doctor's told them right. not to do that. Well, uh, I wonder how many people have been actually uh, crippled long term uh, by having their GP tell them, don't lift more than 25 pounds. You know, no, I, the, you know that's in just the short so, term probably. It, it's just so I, I don't I don't understand what you what do you mean by twenty five pounds? Does that mean you don't go to Walmart? You don't buy anything at the store? You don't carry the groceries out to the car and put them in the car? You don't pick your kid up? You don't do you essentially you don't interact with the physical environment anymore? You you don't lift more than twenty five pounds. You know, and that that weight is totally. It's just a number that the guy jerked out of his ass, and it's just it's just bizarre to me that uh, this is still being taught to patients. Uh, and as you say, this is cover your ass medicine. Uh, <clears throat> don't lift more than twenty five pounds because in the short twenty six pounds. Say, yeah, that's that's where uh, things are going to go weird is whenever you lift that extra right. pound. But in the short term, I mean, it makes sense on their end that if it hurts, don't sure. do it. That will keep you from coming coming back into my right. office. I'm already overworked as it is. I don't have the time to give you a 40 minute evaluation to ensure that there's really nothing. Going well, and on. you have I, you don't have the background to perform such an evaluation anyway because you haven't been taught anything about biomechanics about skeletal loading, about spinal loading in particular, all you've taught about, all you've been taught is pain. You've been taught about pain, you've been taught about the medications to prescribe for analgesia, you've been taught about mm -hmm. how to get this pain patient out of your office as fast as possible. And, and you're going to go by the clinical practice well, of course you are because somebody comes in with acute, acute back pain or a back pain that doesn't seem to be a radiculopathy or right. some type of nervous involvement, that you're going to give them six weeks of non-steroidals. If it hasn't gone away at six six weeks to about 18 weeks, then you'll, you're going to order a lumbar spine panel. Um, you're going to send them to physical therapy, and that's just kind of general general medicine. Right. You know, that's standard of care. And because that's a um, standard of care, if you follow it, you can't get sued. Even though what right, you have done is not effective. You can't be sued. And it's unfortunate, and I sincerely mean this, it's unfortunate that that's how medicine must be practiced. Uh, in, my, in my position now, I approve all the consults for the physical therapy clinic. Like me as the, the chief or the director of the clinic, I approve all the consults. And I would say probably 50 to 60% of the consults that come in for back pain are for people that have already, what they say, failed conservative treatment with um, NSAIDs and muscle relaxers and rest. And it's, I, I don't, I can't think of anybody that I've had come in that was given that as their standard prescription and had them actually get better to where it didn't escalate to going to physical therapy. And once they come to, once they come to my office, then now they've, they're either going to be along the, the natural history or natural progression of back pain where their pain is starting to go back down whenever they come, or they're going to be, they're going to have had back pain long enough to where now it's become chronic in mm -hmm. nature. And then that leaves me with an entirely different um, patient 
like profile to have to have to work with. And I'd say that in the short term, it makes sense. It, at least intuitively, it makes sense. Whenever you're you're trying to protect your own medical license and stuff like that, it makes sense to say, well, if it hurts, don't do it. That seems like it makes sense. And in the short term, there's probably very little risk to it. But whenever you're a patient and your entire adult life has been told, don't do something because things hurt. And anytime something hurts, well, don't do anything. Then you start to look, you know, kind of the chronic effects of a whole bunch of periods of time throughout your life where you haven't been able to do something. And then that's how you start to see, you know, people that I see in the hospital that are deconditioned at 50, 60 years old, they can barely get out of bed. They're walking with a walker. And I mean, I look at some of these patients and I'm like, man, that's 10 years from now, whenever I'm going to be the same age. And the, really the only difference between me and them is that I train on a regular basis. Let's, this is probably a good time to, uh, to stipulate to a point here. We are talking about, when we talk about back pain, Will and I are specifically talking about the kind of back pain that's only in your back. Okay. Yes, non-specific no, mechanical back Mechanical pain. back pain in your back. We're not talking about something that is radiating down a leg, radiating down an arm, causing numbness or tingling at a point of remove from the spine itself. We are talking about pain localized to the back. And mm -hmm. uh, if you've got what uh, would be considered neurological symptoms, that's not what we're talking about. We're t and, and, you know, I would imagine that, uh, uh, well, instead of me guessing at it, let me, and I've got a number in my mind, what do you, uh, what do you think is the percentage of people who present with strictly low back pain as opposed to pain associated with radiculopathy? Um, so I've seen two patients that have come in to me with a referral for, for back pain, and as soon as they came in, I was able to pick up on the fact that this was a screaming radiculopathy, and it was outside of the scope of physical therapy for treatment. So I've had two immediate referrals to surgery based off of the patient's presentation, but then everybody else, and I mean, I treat hundreds, if not thousands of these in any given year, um, even if they do have some radiating pain, for the most part, I'm able to treat them without any escalation to surgery. Um, because radiating pain is a little bit funny because we do refer pain to different parts of the body. Mm -hmm. Even if it's central, if it's mechanical back pain, people can still have radiating symptoms. But, sure. Sciatic you know, is of, commonly I, associated with something like that. Exactly. And sciatic, uh, I mean, it's kind of a garbage term, but, you know, it just just means that there's radiating pain down the sciatic nerve distribution. And so that's where a good competent physical exam can identify whether or not this is a true nerve root impingement that's causing progressive neurological impairment, or if it's not that and it's just central back pain, then we can then we can work on that. There's something else too that some people, I mean, it's very, very, very uncommon, but people can come in with centralized low back pain that have something like a tumor in their spine or something like that. And that's again where a good, good competent physical exam and a good thorough history of a patient's symptoms will help weed that out. But those are the kind of the red flags that you're looking for for stuff like that are very, very stark. And what tends to happen is people will, people, maybe, maybe the most um, use, useless 
um, subjective um, report that I can get from a patient is that they have numbness and tingling because we don't really have a good understanding of what that actually means. Um, and people, I, I would say probably a quarter to maybe a half of the patients that I have come in here um, have some degree of numbness and tingling. Whenever you ask them the question, do you have any numbness and tingling in your legs, in your feet, in your hands? People always say yes, but I mean, that could be from a lot of different things. Uh, I'd see it very common that people have numbness in their feet whenever they run. And it's probably because they tie their shoelaces too tight. Right. It doesn't mean that they're, and that may or may not be associated people. with the report of the low back pain. So the number in my head was 95%, but I gather that you're telling me it's much lower than that. Uh, I would say probably 95 to probably 98% of people who come in that have back pain, they just have back pain. Right. So it's a the very vast small percentage. Right. So the vast majority of people that are, that are asking to be treated for low back pain uh, are certainly candidates for a much more aggressive approach to back pain. Uh, which would be squats and deadlifts. The problem, of course, is that uh, people with low back pain are going to have to be very carefully taught how to do this. There's going to have to be careful explanation about why it's okay to do this, the right way to do it, and be walked through it a step at a time so as to be made comfortable with the idea that they can, in fact, use their back. The problem, of course, is that there are virtually no physical therapists and absolutely no physical therapy schools at this point who are generating DPTs that are competent to teach the squat and the deadlift to people in this demographic. And that's unfortunate because the two most effective therapies we have, the squat and the deadlift, are the least two that are likely to be uh, accessible to a typical patient through a physical therapy clinic. Damn it, you know? Yeah, if you look at, um, you know, they try to like set up um, like clinical prediction rules for low back pain. You know, if somebody meets this certain classification that they've had back pain for less than 16 days or younger, then you, do a manipulation and send them on their way. If they come in, if they're hypermobile, they're female, they're a little bit younger, like you can, you do lumbar stabilization with them and stuff like that. But for the most part, I mean, most everybody that comes into my clinic is either going to be appropriate for manipulation or not. If they're not appropriate for manipulation, then maybe I can do some manual therapy to just kind of do some joint mobilizations. But unless somebody has a screaming radiculopathy, the, and I, I go through at length trying to explain this to patients that the way that you're going to actually not only make the, the episode of back pain shorter, truncated a little bit, but also help, help make these, um, these episodes come like at, at sh longer and longer intervals uh, between each other is that you have to load the spine, but I'm going to show you a precise way to load the spine so that it's safe that you conduct the movement and that you have in rather than have somebody come in and do three sets of 20 
prone planks for whatever <laughs> or do supine bridges or something what yeah. we normally call as lumbar stabilization exercises I, I show them we're going to have you squat i'm going to put a weight on your back i'm going to have you do all that stuff that we do with lumbar stabilization you're actually going to do that whenever you do the squat so you get the benefit of not only loading the spine with a progressively loaded resistance that you can actually see progress on the bar from workout to workout, which is something that I can't give you whenever I have you just do mat-based lumbar stabilization exercises. Mm -hmm. I know that this is standard of care that you're supposed to lay on your back and raise your butt up off the ground and do stuff like that, but I'm gonna give you something a little bit better because you're gonna do all of that, but you're gonna do that with a progressively loaded system and you're gonna be able to see every time that you're getting stronger. And we do the same thing with the deadlift. And sometimes, you know, like I said, I have to t tell people, I'm going to teach you how to lift something off the ground the right way. Teach them how to lift because everybody's been told that you lift with which your legs. And which meaningless is, nonsense. It's meaningless nonsense. And it it's one of those things that, like, at face value, it seems like it makes sense. Use your legs instead of your back. But what you don't know is that whenever you – kneel down to the ground to pick something up you put yourself in an extreme amount of lumbar flexion you get this big posterior pelvic tilt um, your lumbar paraspinals are very stretched at the bottom of that and as you start to come up with the resistance what happens is now your low back starts to get in a little bit better mechanical position to actually contract so it's coming under tension dynamically and then by the time that they stand all the way up with it and they have to carry something what did they do? They lean back with it to make it a little bit easier for them to mm -hmm. carry. So they're going from lumbar flexion all the way to lumbar extension dynamically with a load. And then I can show that to them in a mirror, have them see that actually happen, and then show them how to deadlift, well, lift something off the ground correctly and show that they're able to maintain that neutral lumbar arch and that they're in a little bit of extension, which I explained to them is safe. Um, and have them do that. And well, more often than probably other people, they, the patient looks at it and says, yeah, that actually makes sense. And then I say, okay, now we have to get you in the gym and we have to make you deadlifts. And as long as they're willing to do that, I can't think of anybody that I've gotten on that program that has come back that has not improved significantly. Well, I was going to ask what, what kind of, uh, success rate do you have with, uh, a squat and deadlift approach to treating back pain? You've got I would well. Say you've got and you've got a more compliant demographic that you're dealing with than the general public, right? Or am I? I, would, I'm, I would not, say, I'm not. I'm misinterpreting the military situation there. I, I think that you may be misinterpreting the military situation. Um, one of the biggest, um, I would say that from from my experience working with the military, you get about fifty percent of the people that come in and that's really what they want to do is they want to get back to training, they want to get back to their job, they want to get back to their career progression and they're tired of some kind of injury hindering what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Um you have about fifty percent of the patients that I have come in that really have no want to continue with military service and they use whatever kind of injury that they have to help start the process of getting them out. And the military really? At it, a lot like workers' compensation, I would say about half the patients that I have come in are kind of along the lines of like a work, workman's compensation claim patient because there's such a large amount of secondary gain to having pain in the military because if you're shown to be disabled from this type of pain, then you can receive 
you know, compensation for the rest of your life. Plus, it can Ooh, also get you out of the military. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Hadn't even thought and about so it's, that. That's unfortunate it's, also, isn't it? What a... What I do like about my population, though, is that I do have, unlike workman's compensation, which is a little bit, that's a totally different animal, and it's something that I have very little experience with, but with my population is, um, as long as they get to me at the right time and it hasn't gone too far down that kind of chronic pain level, that a lot of times I'm able to kind of turn the tide with these people, but I would say that for people that are willing, people that are able to squat and deadlift, I'm probably batting over 90%. I'm probably batting 900 or so with these people. As long as they'll squat and deadlift, they get better. Um, and that's standard standard prescription. If they're not willing to do that, I'm probably like everybody else. And it's probably maybe 30% get better, maybe 25% who can maintain their symptoms. And then maybe 30 to 50% end up at somebody else's office, like a pain management physician right. or something like that. It's worse. Right. Well, uh, I'm glad that your experience comports with mine. We've had uh, very good luck with with teaching people how to pull and squat in here, and very good very good luck with uh, treating common complaints of back pain that develop uh, amongst our members because they're upright humans, not because they're lifting weights, but because everybody gets back pain. Uh, and, and, and I, I know you've read the boards, and it's interesting that we have so many accounts on the board of uh, people with chronic back pain just biting it off and starting to, starting to deadlift and squat, and, and almost the universal response is that uh, they get back on after three or four weeks and say my back's been hurting for five years. I started the program and it's gone. It's absolutely gone. There are, there are thousands of those posts over the past 11 years that we've been <laughs> operating this board. There are thousands of posts that uh, reinforce that, uh, uh, that experience that you and I have, have had as essentially clinicians uh, with loading people's backs with the squat and the deadlift. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting uh, that mm -hmm. our rate of uh, of success with these people is so much higher than that of conventional uh, medicine, conventional physical therapy. Yet nobody is is using our approach but us. And I, you know, is there any any way to change this paradigm? You think, or is it strictly is cover your ass? so thoroughly built into this into this medicine model that that's just the way it's going to be i think that there's um there's a big shortcoming with the whole evidence-based practice model um it it makes sense and we should use the best available evidence for some of our treatments but there's sometimes that we we do need to understand that the fact, the simple fact that sometimes the wrong research question gets asked. Sometimes there's a poor design to help try to answer that research question and clinical, clinical expertise, clinical intuition, stuff like that um, has kind of gotten trumped by 
what does the evidence say? And you look at some of the evidence, and I mean, there's some some studies out there where they try to use deadlifting to treat low back pain. But you look at the studies, and there's a very poor description of what the deadlift actually means. So, yeah, I mean, if you have people do kind of like a squat pull type deadlift, which is what, you know, kind of your general general issue deadlift that you see in the gym of course it's not going to help well you know or, or people perceive that a kettlebell deadlift is the is better because you can keep your back at a more vertical angle and they, of course they misunderstand all of the you know all the very nature of pulling mechanics and in, in making that assumption and uh but they think they already know so they're going to try or they'll try trap bar deadlifts in order to try to get as vertical as possible, yeah. thus missing right. the point. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, uh, it, I think it's, you have to it's kind frustrating of at, that there's this level of misinformation. Uh, I think you have to kind of look at like what physical therapy and what medicine is doing. You have, kind of have to see who's, who's joining the boards, who's becoming starting strength coaches, who's actually putting some mechanical analysis into some of the stuff that we do, um, you got people like doctors Feigenbaum, you got Dr. Baraki, Dr. Sullivan, you got Dr. Patrizo, you got Nick who's in physical therapy school now. You got all these guys that are kind of seating themselves in different allied health professions mm -hmm. or medicine as a profession. In addition to and several people that are posting on the board with with some frrequency that are practicing physicians in various disciplines. Uh, that yeah, are wholeheartedly of, uh, endorsing our, our approach to these things. And I think you'll see it as kind of more of like an insurgency. I mean, we're probably never going to change the, the, the paradigm probably not. throughout the entire system. That, I think that would be a ridiculous goal. But I think that, you know, the more people that you get kind of out there and at least using some of these principles, whenever they're prescribing stuff to, I mean, if I could get a family practice physician to have people come in for back pain and start that conversation with them very early. Hey, you need to squat, you need to deadlift because that's that's the only thing that you're gonna be able to do to, to strengthen your back, that lumbar stabilization exercises and Roman chair, like hyperextensions and stuff like that don't really train your back the way that you think right. that, they're, that they're doing it, that we need to load your spine. It, I mean, if we could start doing that, I think you're going to start having some change. But then again, we're probably still always going to be the minority because right. in large part, a lot of physicians, a lot of physical therapists, a lot of other health professionals are always going to err on the side of being conservative. Sure. And then a lot of patients are always going to err on the side of passive treatment. Right. right. That I have something wrong with me. You as the doctor, I want you to do something to make right. me feel better. I want and sometimes it's and if you look at, I mean, if 60% of the 60% of the population is overweight or obese, then you look and you say, well, you know, we do have a physical activity problem. And if what you have going on with you is going to be cured with physical activity, we can't even, we can't even convince enough people that physical activity is necessary just for life, let right. alone with back pain. And so you start having some of these things, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, joint pain, you have all these things start to compound on each other. And then, yeah, we're still looking at, you know, a fraction of the patient population that comes in that will ever want to do this. Sure. But Well, I, I think that what we have here, I think that getting everybody deadlifting squatting is a wonderful goal. I just think 
Uh, I think you're wrong about that. I think it's a wonderful goal. I do, however, agree that it's a ridiculous expectation in uh, in today's yeah. That's today's, probably a today's, way to, today's today's uh, people are just. I understand that, and I understand the level of frustration uh, that even enlightened doctors. Uh, one guy posts on the board that was recently here at uh, at one of our seminars uh, talks about this. He said that it's, it's all he can do to get people to not put sugar in their coffee, much less get up off their ass and squat and deadlift. They're just not going to do it. People have not been raised to do things that are uncomfortable, and as a result, it's probably a ridiculous expectation. But what Will and I are telling you guys that are watching this is that we have the tools if you will use them. We understand that you're reluctant to do it, primarily because you're lazy. But what we're telling you is, don't be afraid to try. Mm. Okay, Will, thanks for being with us. And uh, thanks for having we, me. we appreciate your joining us on the podcast, and we'd like to thank you for watching the podcast with us today. We'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>